E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Amanda Schmelz from Roberta's on the show. Hello, how are you? Hi, how are you? Nice to see you. It's nice to see you too, Levy. So you're working at the old Roberta's there, but uh, originally you were working in Milwaukee. That's right. That's where I got my start in wine and in more of a fine dining restaurant setting. What was the scene like back then? And uh, Akin to Chicago, so uh, steakhouse. <laughs> you know, it was the turn from the sort of late 90s into early 2000s where certainly on the coast things might have been shaking up in terms of dining a little bit, but it was still like very classical fine dining in the center of the country and... You know, the New York Steakhouse and the Chicago Steakhouse were still very much, I think, players in how people would go and spend their money. So that's the kind of place uh, I came up in and really started to get my chops. But I got lucky because the general manager and the wine buyer for the restaurant that I was at had learned at Gramercy Tavern and was one of the um, sort of early managers of that staff and had been you know, in cahoots with the likes of Paul Greco and Robert Bohr and, you know, all, all of the sort of Tom Colicchio and all the guys who are... Heard of those guys. Yeah, you, you, may, you may know such, such dudes. So, yeah, I got really good training even though I was in, you know, a city in the middle of the country. So I got lucky. What was the timeline there? Um, I would say it, I was a junior in college when I began. So 2005 or 2006 to 2007 or eight. So you were working your way through school. Mm -hmm. Yep. And why restaurants? Why did you pick that? Well, I actually, I owe it to a roommate. I mean, I was raised in southeastern PA where there was no cuisine to speak of and, you know, bless my parents, but they don't know how to cook at all. And so it was Kraft macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. And that's fine and uh, particular nostalgia. But I had a roommate who had grew up. There were hot dogs in the Kraft macaroni and cheese. Sometimes separate, sometimes together. It depends on the day. Fridays where we got really nuts and threw peas in there. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I had a roommate, um, who was hugely influential on me in college and I started to get this kind of, uh, Epicurean education just by living with her and hanging out with her. She was raised on watching Julia Child after school and her parents were both cooks and she just cared about food and she was smart about it. And, um, interestingly, she studied speech pathology, but in her off hours, she always said her pipe dream was to have a restaurant. So she ended up working as a backweight and a server in fine dining restaurants because it was the thing that she liked. Um, so she kind of roped me in. She brought you through a little mm-hmm. bit. Yep. 
And she, you know, I would be at home looking to like, you know, eat an entire bag of potato chips with sour cream, which I still do. And she would be like making this Ethiopian meal, you know, (laughs) and our kitchen would smell like fresh herbs. And I would be like, what is this? You know, and then the interest in wine sort of followed immediately behind. Um, So what was the style back then? The wine lists were uh, profoundly domestic. Um, there was, I didn't encounter a ton of European wine. And when I did, it was, you know, like Americans, I think had just heard of Chateauneuf du Pop and it was blowing up and, you know, I sold View Telegraph all the time. And, uh, but I also was selling, you know, like cake bread Chardonnay and not to say anything bad about either of those producers, but it was, you know, I learned domestic wine first, uh, because it was what people wanted to spend money on, at least in Milwaukee. How do you think that shaped your palate? It's given me a really good baseline to know you know, I came, I came of age kind of when Parker was, uh, Robert Parker was at sort of, I think his apex of influence. Um, so I came up on 16% red wines, you know, and I, I came up on things that were massive in palate and that was okay for me because when you grow up drinking diet Coke, you know, it, uh, it makes sense. Your palate is like, okay, I'm ready for this kind of thing that feels like, uh, Splenda, you know, it's, a uh, it, so that that's a really good ground uh, level in some ways to work from because when you see producers working with restraint who are not aiming for high levels of alcohol or super intense extraction um, or ageability via oak, you know you understand their style even better. You don't you don't accept that as like just how wine should be. You have a sort of counterpoint. So it was really funny for me because I did have that trajectory of going from you know supermarket Chianti and. 17.5% American Zinfandel, which I drank by the jug, <laughs> um, into, you know, wines of acid and wines of restraint, um, both both in the U.S. and, in you know, from Europe. Um, so I thought it was a great education. Probably today when you speak with younger people, some of those people have never tried those wines that you tried. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I've started to, I've been doing it slowly, but I've started to bring wines that are like that into wine classes at work because... You know, I have young people who work with me at the restaurant who have uh, no idea that wines are can be without acid. Like they just don't see them, you know, because I don't a I don't buy them, and uh, b they you know they don't have access to really to those kinds of wine lists anymore. Like you can certainly still find them in New York, but they don't you know they don't go to steakhouses in Midtown, so they have no they really don't know. Um, those wines are so can often be expensive. Yeah, exactly. The price tag is high, you know, so it's much easier for me to show you know, a little Vermentino Roussan blend from the Languedoc that's, you know, ripping with acid and is really savory and interesting and was done in stainless steel to a 20-year-old, you know, because it costs $18 than it is for me to show them, you know, this is what silver oak wines used to look like because they still cost $350. So I'm actually really grateful for where I started out in terms of learning wine, A, because my American geography is pretty solid in terms of wine, um, you got all those Sonomas down? Yeah. <laughs> you know how there's a lot of them. Yeah, there's yeah. The, many, the many faces of Sonoma. Um, you know, I've got that, but I also have an understanding of sort of where the U.S. has been going through its paces and what it means to return to, you know, um, what the old world means versus the new world. And I think that dichotomy is falling away a lot these days. So I'm glad that I caught it. So when did you get out of Milwaukee? Uh, 2008. And what happened next? Grad school. Um, So I moved from Milwaukee, did a brief stint back home uh, to gather my things and moved to New York, um, which has been about five and a half years, going on six. 
And yeah, I entered grad school and knew that I wanted to keep working in restaurants, A, because I enjoyed it, and B, because I needed a way to sort of survive while I was doing my MFA. And a friend of mine worked at the Ace Hotel right as uh, April Bloomfield was gearing up to open a new restaurant in it and said, hey, if you know, if you're into, you know, real cooking and you're into restaurants, like they've got this thing going on. So I got a job there. And shortly thereafter, um, Carla Rizuski took over the wine program at the Breslin and the Ace. And she figured out really quickly that she needed help. Um, so she started looking for because um, that's som. a couple of restaurants. You know, it's well, not not only that, but the Ace is massive. I mean, it does it does crazy volume. Like a lot of those, you know, Lower Manhattan hotels, they're just like they just get so many people coming through them that you, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of volume and a lot of work, especially if you're operating, you know, the wine program of the hotel and then a wine program at a restaurant as well. And then you know, eventually they opened a second restaurant within the hotel, which is a completely you know the John Dory Oyster Bar, which is a completely separate wine list. So it's a lot of work, um, and she did need help. So I stuck my nosy face in the middle of the conversation. Was like, "Hi, I've done wine stuff a little bit because um, I was working as a cellar hand and." sort of get going through my paces, learning how to do floor psalm stuff. So yeah, she hired me on. And what was that like? Vibrant, energetic. That's mostly working with Carla. <laughs> uh, it, it was really interesting because the, the crowd that comes into the ACE, uh, especially the first year or so that the Breslin was open, it was a really mixed crowd in terms of what their expectations and their aims were. You know, some of them were coming to the restaurant because it was like a trendy new restaurant and that was usually the younger set. Um, who were open to wines from all over and wines at a lower price tag. And then there was the Midtown set who still, you know, are are all over the place there. And they're looking for, if they don't recognize the appellation or the provenance of a wine, they don't want it. So, you know, it's they're, they have to drink Barolo for at least $100 or they're not buying a bottle of wine. Um, so it's the, it was this weird thing where I think Carla had to design her programs to both set, to satisfy both corners and, um, so I, you know, I kind of had a really wide array of interactions with guests that sometimes was like, oh yeah, they're totally into this, you know, Riesling Schmadog from the Wachau. Uh, and then the next guest over would be like, why don't you have more Cabernet? Or like, why do you only have three Bordeaux? It was like, well, <laughs> um, so that was interesting because it made me adept in identifying the kinds of different expectations that are still alive in New York in terms of wine. You started to kind of see who was going to ask you for what before they asked for it. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that, and you know, there are there are many as many different sets of expectations for wine in New York as there are people under the sun. But there are there are clusters of attitudes. You know, you do find some people will only drink European wine of prodigious name, and that's all they'll put on their Instagram account, and that's all they'll spend their money on, and they're just not. In, and some people, you know, still only want. Napa cab. And then some people want stuff that they'll now call funky, you know, and they, they kind of don't necessarily know how to articulate it another way, but they want things that seem experimental or that are from off the beaten path, you know, so you have kind of this whole range of different, different expectations. And, you know, as a Psalm, your job is to be adroit in all of those scenarios. So I started getting my chops that way. That's a situation where the vibe is somewhat casual, but the food's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's, that's what I prefer in terms of dining. I, you know, I try to still go to fine dining restaurants now and then to remind myself of, you know, how they work and, and what they're like. And I just find that I've stopped enjoying them by and large. I, you know, I, what do you think that is? 
Well, I can't laugh as loud as I do natively. You um, are a loud laugher. I am a loud laugher. I mean, laugher. I enjoy that in a person. That's a quality I look for. Thank you, Levy. Yeah, my, you can sort of hear me coming from a ways off, and I have found that in you know in restaurants with linen on the table, they don't find that the most attractive quality in the world, which is fine. You know, and, and that, and I, I, I feel a little bit funny with some of the accoutrement that comes along with some of the theater that comes along with that old way of dining that that seems to me a relic from another era and even from another place. You know, I uh, every time someone reaches out to crumb my linen, I just want to take my hand and put it on top of theirs and be like, you know, it's all right. <laughs> We're in I, like, this I humanity you, thing together. Yeah, you know, like I, I see you. I recognize that you too have a tiny apartment in some lousy neighborhood in New York and that you are probably a musician. Like I, I wish you wouldn't crumb my table, you know, <laughs> even if it's dirty, like I've got a napkin, I'll take care of it. You know, uh, so maybe that's just because I'm I'm young, but I think there's something more going on there. There's something um, socioeconomic going on there, and there's something uh, in restaurants about like middle to upper class identity that I I think about a lot and I struggle with, and I I prefer the casual setting because it strips a little bit of that theater away, and it strips a little bit of what I think. And I'm going out on a limb, but our sort of old class, sort of like class action. Um, You're you saying know, lawyers. Not lawsuits. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Just, if, if you don't crumb this table, I'm going to yeah, sue your ass. I, I am a litigious mother. I will do it. I will do it. Sometimes I think it has to do with generations of Americans that were in the military service and had to put on a uniform. Or like go to an officer's club, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Sure. And like certain standards of like, hey, you got to polish those shoes. Yeah, d- decorum. It's old, It's old. you know. There's old highly etiquette. defined ranks. For like, sure. Like, hey, this is the general and this is, you know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. And, then and you we know, didn't have that. Not right? at all. So then we don't like to dine like that. And I, I kind of think it's like that. Because, you know, my dad was in the Air Force. Right. You know right. what I mean? It wasn't I, no, that I, long no, ago. No, I do. I do. And kinda I re- everybody. Had some sort of, you know, notion of hierarchical... Uh, etiquette um you know and i like i like a certain amount of manner you know what i mean like being a mannered person i don't think is bad but the the ways in which it plays out you in don't restaurants, like floss your teeth at the table right or uh, ask that... someone else to do it for you even. <laughs> sir i have a bit of kale in my tooth you got the crumbs you, on the you... table but <laughs> any chance you can just my take the service to the help. next level yeah my face needs a little help so, i never anyway. said that by the way <laughs> Um, so that's my very long-winded way of saying I care about excellent cooking and excellent wine, but I don't love when they come uh, even in a button-down shirt, let alone a tux. Um, I wore a sweater for this. I just want the record Thank to show. you for wearing a hoodie. I appreciate it. <laughs> what was it like working for April Bloomfield? I loved it. She was really kind to me. She was kind to me and she didn't have to be because, you know, no chef has to be kind to the front of house. <laughs> um, but she, uh, I think, I think she found me amusing. Her accent is, is pretty hysterical too. So she, I don't think she knows that my name isn't Aminder um, because that's what I got called for several years. Um, that's like a childhood detective name. Yeah. Like Aminder's <laughs> Unsolved Mystery or something. You like get the book and you get from the library. It's a cute yellow cover. Um yeah, she was lovely to me. She was uh, ferocious in the kitchen, and there were some days where I certainly was glad to not have my hands on a pan because I'm pretty sure that she would have slapped them. Um, but 
you know, she was very uh, kind and even soft-spoken in the rest of her dealings. Um, like you couldn't even hear the er part of Amanda? <laughs> no, she, like sort of, that, she would so trail quiet. off, yeah. Um, no, she's just, she's a, there's like a bit of whimsy to her, and I um, I appreciated that. And I also, I really admired most about her the way that she gathered talent around her. She hired really, really well. So her sous chefs and her CDCs and her restaurants are all people who I counted friends and who, you know, were contributing profoundly to the menus. And they were, by and large, women. There were a handful of uh, gents, too, but she hired kind of across the board and she hired a lot of talent in her kitchens. Um, and I loved that. That was like a, a marvelous environment to sort of be in. So what was the next step for you? Uh, well, after about two and a half years or maybe almost three of working with Carla and um, for April, I left the city for a little while to go to San Francisco, um, was there for about six or seven months. That doesn't then, seem like a long time. No, it was brief. Uh, my boyfriend at the time was out there and I um, was sort of testing the Bay Area waters and I was rather snotty about it and wanted to go back to New York pretty quickly. Were you like one of those people who was like, where's the rest of it? Like uh, that yeah, that and I was also like, you know, these people have no backbone. They're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, How come you can't get this done? Such a gentle climb. You guys move so slow and also your services end at 10 o'clock at night. I was like, none of you have ever worked in a real restaurant before, which is, these are all like horrible things and, you know, prejudices of mine and this is why New Yorkers have a terrible reputation, I suppose. But, I found it a little um, mild for my tastes. Uh, although there is plenty to love in the Bay Area, which now I understand <laughs> after having many friends correct my notions about this. Um, but anyway, I, I uh, came back to New York and a dear friend, uh, Max Sussman, was the chef de cuisine at Roberta's at the time. And Roberta's had been searching for a wine director for upwards of, I think, almost nine months um, you could have a child at that point. You could like birth a I, new wine they, director. And they did. And <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, Max just kind of shot me a message. It was like, "Hey, we're still looking. If you if you if you're looking for a gig." And um, I went and interviewed, and I liked him right away. What'd you tell him? Um, that I would do a good job. <laughs> I mean, I think they. So you lied. <laughs> I, yeah, I lied. I gave them bald face lies. <laughs> kidding, I kidding. fed I fed them anything they would hear. No, I um. I think maybe what they were looking for was someone who could hack the environment. Um, yeah. So what's that like? Rowdy. <laughs> you know, rowdy. Uh, it's a little bit chaotic. You know, it's kind of like working uh, in a tent city. It's quite literally tense everywhere. But, you know, the, the restaurant is one that started off as one thing and its owners could not predict what would have happened to it. And I think... As the restaurant grew, it's been open seven years now, but as it grew, I think the changes that were coming about within their own confines were sort of shocking to them. In spite of all that, the culture of a sort of wildness and a kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So a subversiveness kind of exists within the way that they hire and with the people that they bring in there. And um, they really like a kind of a playfulness. And I think they were looking for someone who has the chops but who also could, you know, kind of manage themselves and others in a in a scenario where you're just as likely to see someone's nose get broken as you are to sell, you know, $200 bottles of Barolo, which is a unique circumstance even in New York. That actually sounds super appealing. It's <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I watched Bloodsport like five times though, so I don't know what other people think about that. But. It's not as pretty as Bloodsport, but uh, it, yeah, it's kind of like that. Do you have to serve the wine when they throw that dust into your eyes? <laughs> You're like, ah, oh, the sand. And then you're like, ah, oh, the Barolo. It's still 
beautifully, gracefully poured. This is nice in here. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's I think that's what they were looking for. And I, I, I certainly don't have the same kinds of knowledge as other people in New York wine. I don't have the, you know, length of experience and, you know, the sort of depth of study. Uh, but I'm pretty tough and I'm pretty resilient. And that place kind of takes it and needs it. Because um, we're actually arm wrestling right now, and clearly I, you guys can't see this, <laughs> but I'm I'm manhandling Levy's arm, throwing him over the table right now. Not and even breaking a sweat. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you beat me. Yeah. Um. But no, I mean, set the stage a little bit for Roberta's. If no one's heard about it. Yeah. So it's a former auto body shop in 2008, um, dilapidated, kind of industrial building. Um, the owners come in, they knock down a corner of it, they put a pizza oven that they have imported from northern Italy into that corner. They put concrete breeze blocks up again to fill the hole in the wall, and they open a pizza joint. Um, when it first opened, there was no liquor license. Um, it was BYO for a while. Then when they decided to get a beer and wine liquor license, I believe one of the owners was doing the initial buying. And these guys had it in their hearts and in their minds that this was going to be this like Italian, this Neapolitan-style um Restaurant, so they bought pretty standard Italian wine, and I think they rode that out for a good long while. And then they wanted to kind of massage the wine program as the restaurant's clout grew, um, and as I think as the cooking became more and more elevated, as they brought more and more talent into the kitchen, they realized that they would have to keep pace, kind of with the rest of what was happening in the restaurant. Um, so there were one or two before me. And there was one wine director that was my immediate predecessor uh, named Krista who made this um, very thorough all-Italian wine list for them, um, which held them in really good stead. And then uh, they parted ways and I came on and said, I don't, you know, I'm going to do all kinds of weird stuff with this, with this wine list. So I hope you guys are cool with that. And they were like, okay. <laughs> um, so that, that was uh, about two and a half years ago, going on three. But who are these guys? I mean, who's in the kitchen? They've had their fair share of people behind the helm. So executive chef is Carlo Marucci. His The chef de cuisine that was there when I started on was Max Sussman, who's a dear friend and an awesome cook. And then of late, um, the most recent chef de cuisine is Nick Barker, um, who came to us by way of Manresa. And although surly, he is also an exceptionally talented man. So those are kind of the... He spends extra time on the lees? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, there's heavy, heavy pumping, uh, with Barker. <laughs> um, that's better than punching down. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so yeah, those are the gents in the kitchen. And then, um, there was a excellent pizza chef. She was in charge of the pizza kitchen named Lauren Calhoun, who is there. And she recently moved on to other stuff too. So there's a lot of talent in the kitchens, more than one. Um, and that's not even to mention anything about Blanca at all. So there's, uh, there are, a lot of things that have been happening in that restaurant in terms of elevating and elevating and all doing it within this kind of boxcar tent city setting where the kitchen in Roberta's is literally the size of a closet. And it's been, it was like that for many, many years. But the reception's been good. I mean, people go there to dine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, plenty of people still come in being like, ah, I heard about this pizza place, which is totally fine because pizza is the revenue driver. And, uh, you know, our buy the glass wine by the glass sales are great because of it because they come in and have a glass or two and that's that. But then there's another chunk of the guests who kind of know what the restaurant is and they know how, like, they are able to dine there. You know, it's not Manresa, but it's close, you know. And they can also do, 
this sort of elevated carrot and muscle dish with Vadavan curry up against their margarita pizza. And it's this this sort of amalgamation of things that's really hard to find all in one spot. And I think that's what makes it interesting. So when you plop a wine list down, a global wine list at that, in the middle of that setting, drinking wine there becomes really interesting too. So who does typically come? It's out in Bushwick. Who makes it there? I mean, everyone. It, it, I think when the restaurant was, in its first couple of years, it was very strongly local. It was Brooklyn local and it was North Brooklyn specific. And we certainly do still get people from the neighborhood in. And I think a lot of people who live anywhere in that nearby radius do still come in and especially dine at the bar and stuff. But I'd say on any given night, I'd say at least a quarter to a third of our guests are non-English speaking. They're foreign and then maybe another quarter are Americans from all over the country. And then another half are everybody from New York. You know, so, I mean, it's it's funny. We, we still get guests who will make jokes about how, like, oh, I came all the way down from, you know, Morningside Heights. And we're like, whoo, are you okay? Do you need a water flask? Do you, can we... Can we get you a fan? Are you doing all right? Like on your vast journey. And then there are people who've literally come from like, like Egypt Saudi Arabia. Yeah. yeah and, and they're are, applying for like diplomatic. Meeting. Yeah. They need a visa to come eat at Roberta's. And, you know, they're just, they're like happy to be there and they don't even notice the wait time. You know, it's, it's just like a really bizarre. Um, maybe that's one of the things that stimulates me the most is that you never have any idea who you're going to be taken care of. Like you have no idea who you're opening a bottle of wine for. So I bet those skills where you had to learn how to please different groups of people really came in handy later on. Yep. Yep. And they've been, they've been guiding principles for me in terms of coaching people through service, you know, coaching really young people and, and people who've never drank real wine before in many cases, kind of helping them understand what different expectations of different people are going to be and like how to handle it. So the staff is younger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we do have some people who are in their early 30s and so on, but it's it's a facet of the restaurant that they like to hire young mm-hmm. um, because then you can kind of, you get people without prejudices and you're able to train them up in a way that's your way and not any other, which can be good and bad. Um, sometimes I wish we have people who'd been through more fine dining training every now and then because you're like, yeah, I just wish you wouldn't put your whole hand in the plate as you're clearing it. Like, maybe, you know, just a thumb is not great, but like the whole hand is kind of a little much, <laughs> You know, you have moments like that where you're like, oh boy, where, you know, I'm really starting from the ground up. Um, but then you also have these moments where people just absolutely have no prejudice. They they don't have any perceptions about, you know, whether or not we should be serving more Gruner Veltliner or more Merlot. They don't have any thought about whether it should be, you know, more Arnais or more Sauvignon Blanc. They don't, you know, they don't care if it's Italy or the U.S. or Slovenia or Germany or they just don't care at all, you know. They're just happy to meet things kind of as they are. Well, they probably care in the sense that they want it to be good, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't. I mean, they do, they just don't have the uh, notions about things that are superior and inferior. Um, they come they come tabula rasa, which is sort of awesome. Which is probably helpful when time of profound restaurant change, yep. basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're you know, I think some of these kids are uh, kind of coming up in this restaurant without an awareness of how unusual it is. Um, which is hysterical for me and also funny when you're trying to teach. But, uh, you know, many of them have no idea that this is not the way that most restaurants run. You know, many of them don't know that you're not allowed to wear tights and, uh, and like weird Doc Martin boots and, you know, shredded up t-shirts, 40 year old t-shirts, um, at every other restaurant. Like I think a lot of them 
don't know it. And that kind of freedom to me is really exciting because I've seen, you know, what it means. And it's also really interesting to watch those young people come up against what the parameters of service mean, even as they're allowed these kinds of freedoms and they and they have all this sort of luxury of learning a vast array of things. But who ends up working there? I mean, are they people from the neighborhood? Are they people who said, I want to work in restaurants? Or what are they like? It's a mix of both. I think in the kitchens, we definitely draw talent. It, it's like people come to cook there. They want to cook there, um, which is awesome because then we get all of these talented, everything from line cooks to prep cooks to, you know, chefs to cuisine. We get exceptionally talented people. Front of house is kind of a different story. I think sometimes we, like, I, I imagine the door of Roberta's as this sort of like open, gently f- open flapping door, you know, and pi- and pilgrims trekking through Brooklyn in, in an attempt to make their fame and fortune in New York come in out of the cold and they say, I need a job. Are you guys hiring? And we go, uh, well, let's sit down and talk to you, you know, and because um, it's kind of like the beginning of Frozen, then. Yeah, like exactly. Need, yeah, exactly. A sled, a snowstorm. It's mostly about feelings and whether or not your cold heart can be melted down. Um, it, it's just really funny, you know. We get all these resumes in, and they're and they're completely irrelevant to restaurants. Have nothing to do with them at all. And we, unlike I think a lot of other restaurants, will be like, well, let's bring them in. <laughs> you know, like let's see what they're like. Um, which again has its has its pros and its cons, but it, it is a little bit. It feels a little bit experimental. It feels a little bit subversive uh, because, you know, it's not like the the old New York where it was like you need at least three years of New York restaurant experience to even get your resume looked at, you know, um, or a headshot or something. Uh, it's it's different, so that's kind of fun. But you you like that difference? That oh, subversive yeah. part is yeah. Very- I mean, you know, it means that I have to put more working in terms of training, you know, like I, I hold a wine class once a week because they need it. it also because I like doing it and I really like tasting wine with people. Um, and I love the sound of my own voice. So that's really nice too. Um, it's melodic. I mean, I, I, <laughs> um, I can dig, I mean, I say that as you've already holding my hand down an arm wrestling. <laughs> so, it's, it's about the so highs and lows. Take it what it is. It's but. about the highs and the lows. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I hold a wine class once a week because Again, there's a lot of ground to cover. You know, it's not like people who've been through, we only have a handful of people who've like worked at Balloud and worked at Laburn and worked at, you know, in terms of front of house. The bees, you know. the bee places. Yeah, you know, just the the big bees. Um, yeah, so they, they need extra care and your wine list needs extra education. It needs extra training. It needs constant kind of care, you know, and, and you have to be the kind of person who is okay with not being like, you're a grown-up, figure it out, and kind of tossing the wine list at them and being like, I'm not here to babysit you or hold you by the hand. I am, in fact, here to babysit <laughs> and hold by the hand. <laughs> like, that's sometimes exactly what it feels like doing. Like, you know, um, and I don't and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's sort of, there's like a nurturing and a, and a mentoring that happens there. It's adventures and babysitting. That's like exactly right. That movie. And sometimes they're just throwing flour and baby powder everywhere and they're and then they're pooping and it's just like a mess. And say, meanwhile, they're talking intelligently about Montepulciano and it's not bad, you know? But when that's the gig, what works and what doesn't work? You sort of can't ask for the more advanced conversations in wine. You know, I try to keep technical information dialed down a little bit. You know, I don't, I don't want their primary questions to be like, did this spend time on the lees or, you know, what's the vinification process or, 
what are the acid levels or residual sugar levels like in this wine? Because to me, that's not stuff that's helpful to the guests. It's the rare guest who wants that kind of info. So instead, I focus on what do you smell? What do you taste? How does this work with food? It's a, it's a very kind of like visceral education, you know, and sometimes I do get frustrated because like, okay, how many times can I say where the Loire Valley is in France, right? Like how many times do I have to point to the map and show it to you? And, and the answer is all the times, every time, again and again, again and again, until the new staff gets it and the old staff steps in to help me train, you know? Um, so you, ha you have to have a lot of patience in order to, you know, work with a staff that does have that kind of freewheeling um, nature. But it works. I mean, if you can bear with it, it really does work. There are a lot of a lot of 24-year-olds at this restaurant who can tell you, you know, about regional discrepancies between France and Italy. And, you know, they've never done wine before, ever. It does seem like there have been some people who have been there for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a senior staff for sure. I mean, when people get jobs in the front of house at Roberta's, they tend to not leave, unless they're Australian. And then they come in for five months and they charm us all with their tales of dingoes and then they leave again. But, you know, typically if it's people from New York, they stay you know, they, they start as hosts or backweights or whatever, uh, barbacks. And then they, most of them have a tenure of anywhere from two to five to six years. Um, it's pretty long. It's long. Six years is, it's like, it's a good chunk of time. There were definitely people who, when I got there had already been three years in and who stayed another two on, you know, and we've got a handful of bartenders and servers, especially who've already been there three, four or five years, you know? So that's really awesome because there is, um, there is a senior, there are senior staff who are capable of also guiding the younger ones too and sharing their wine knowledge. And there's a lot of wine drinking that goes on, which I think is awesome. Like separate of me, independent of me, you know, people want to drink the list. Our staff does. So they do. And that's like really in bad. their homes and their house parties and they're going out. Yeah. But also in the restaurant, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's often, it's like the end of a shift thing, right? It's like, okay, what bottle are we buying tonight? Right. And everybody kind of splits it and talks about it. And that kind of, I, I like, treasure that kind of camaraderie around wine because that's something that draws me in too and it's to me that's true to life you know like having your staff be you know excited by and and delighted by the exploration of this thing together um that's true to sitting down at a table with your people who are into wine and you know kind of going to town on a couple bottles that's really cool so how big is the staff i mean uh, it's about 120 people oh so that's 130 kind of big yeah. i mean just front of the house is 130 no back of house also oh, okay. um but front of house is probably 70 80 strong um which is big so how many people show up for a wine tasting i'd it depends on the weather but uh <laughs> i every week it's anywhere from i'd say a dozen people to 40 which is 40 is a fair amount of people yeah it's kind of incredible to me um we did we did a class on magnums i, I poured a couple different a bunch of different magnums um for the holidays by the glass and i think it was 45 people that showed up it was really hard to maintain control you know but they're enthusiastic um and they show up and they make it awesome so it's that's like one of my favorite things that we do what's the list like now pretty global um currently in the middle of kind of deepening some sections right now so the the big three that are on the list are france italy and the u.s just to be sort of accurately global in terms of where the big three that people drink from, but there's stuff from all over. You know, I'm, I'm, I try to hit little pockets of interest in different parts of the world too. So I'm like a huge German wine nut. So I have a little very nerdy section on German wine. And, you know, there's little things from Eastern Europe that I'm really taken by. There's Spanish obscurities. Um, there's a whole bunch of sherry and American cider and sparkling wines from all over. But yeah, it's pretty, um, it's pretty diverse. 
in terms of style of wine and ter- like winemaking, I, I do love natural wine, but I'm open to many different interpretations of that term. Um, so I like to showcase wines from the extremists and I like to showcase wines from the traditionalists and the vast bulk of the wine lists strikes kind of right in between, you know, but I do prefer wines that come from people who farm really well and who uh, don't overly process their wines. Um, that's definitely like a, that's a baseline fact kind of on the wine list. Yeah. And it's, about, I think it's about 120 bottles or so strong right now, but by spring, it'll probably be closer to 180 because we're kind of bulking up. So. And then there's also the Blanca part of the mm-hmm. restaurant. What's that? Blanca is the sister restaurant to Roberta's. Uh, it's a tasting menu restaurant only 12 seat counter. It's a 20 to 24 course meal. Um, and it happens um, four days a week and twice in a service. And then I, I orchestrate the wine program for that as well. So the a la carte list is, it's concise. It's maybe no more than 50 bottles strong, but there's also a wine pairing um, that we organize as well. And that's kind of, that's the thing that we like people to do when they come into the dinner. Um, Cause it's sort of all about tasting and pairing and uh, exploring. So Roberta's is more about by the glass and bottles, mm-hmm. and then the Blanca side is more wine pairing focused. Yeah, the focus is on the pairing, but there's definitely options for those who prefer to drink by the bottle. Do you see a difference in the kind of people or in the kind of bottles that people would pick, say, in Roberta's oh, versus yeah. Blanca? Yeah, I'd say by and large, the guests at Blanca are far more conservative in what they buy. Part of that is price tag. You know, the the median price of the list is is significantly higher at Blanca. I mean, it's not it's not crazy. There are certainly lists in the city that are more expensive. But, you know, you usually have to spend 90 or 100 bucks on a bottle at Blanca, where at Roberta's you can get a $40 bottle and it's awesome. Um, so I think when people are spending that kind of money, they're a little bit more conservative in what they want to buy because they're afraid of wasting the money, right? They're really afraid of buying a bottle that is just going to be too weird for them and they're not going to like it and they threw $100 at it, you know? So I, I tow this line between doing what I really want on the Blanca list, which is a similar thing to Roberta's. You know, it's stuff that's a little more off the beaten path, more naturally made, um, a little bit more expressive and maybe less famous. But, you know, the guests are often coming in like, okay, I'm already spending a fair chunk of change on this meal. I really don't want to blow my bottle of wine. So I, I, I'm torn between those sort of two impulses, and I try to, I try to meet both. On the a la carte list anyway. But I mean, I guess that's assuming that people in general want to experiment. Mm-hmm. Whereas sometimes I feel like people feel like, oh, I have all this money. I deserve the best. And right. they're not necessarily trying to experiment. They just drink the classic stuff because that's what they, you know. Right. And this, and this is afford. some of what I was saying, right, yeah. about the, fi- the old fine dining stuff that drives me crazy. Um, I, I don't, I really can't stand when people go on dint of reputation. When they go by dint of perceived value instead of actual value. And the only way you can assess actual value is by experiencing the stuff, right? And, and you know, through becoming experienced, you can tell, okay, that bottle cost me 300 bucks and this one cost me 75, but their actual value is probably somewhere in between. This $75 bottle of natural Burgundy is way overperforming this totally over-sulfured, over-processed Chevy Chambertin or whatever. And both of them should be probably around 100 bucks, <laughs> you know? Um, the only way you reach that is by experience and by kind of stripping away some of your notions of how things are supposed to be. And a dollar sign just gives you that that little shorthand for this thing is going to be valuable. And that's people who aren't thinking through economics and who aren't thinking through market. And it's people who think that, you know, if you spend money on something, it's worthwhile. And it's totally cool if they think that, like, who am I to change them, right? But 
I don't like gearing my wine list toward that. I far prefer guiding it toward a conversation at least, you know, if not experimentation and exploration, at least a conversation. I'm like, okay, if you like Brunello, you can drink things from Lazio that are also big and expensive. You know, if you if you are into Tuscany, you're probably not going to hate some things from Umbria now and then. But sometimes I come up against a roadblock with that. And I do think it's just about the money. Because, you know, high volume place, big staff, younger staff. Mm-hmm. One of the things that someone might do is be like, oh, let's put some easy bankers on there. Like people are just going to. Order that no. Montepulciano di Abruzzo up, no. and then I don't have to be at every table. Nope, I won't do it. Um, I mean, my my staff laughs now because now now they know my game. I'll, I'll hit the price points that people want, but I'm going to make them learn. You know, I'm going to I'm going to. There are times when none of our wines by the glass are easily pronounceable, and it's it's deliberate. You know, it, it's not because I'm being contrarian, but because I'm saying, you know, you guys are using these words as shorthand. You know, you're saying Chianti, but you don't know what it means, and you're not interested in finding out, and I'm going to make you, you know, because I'm going to make you drink Tereldigo instead. So there is like an implicit challenge in there, and most people don't notice it. Like almost nobody gets upset about it, but every now and then I do have a guest who's like, this is incomprehensible. (laughs) You're being terrible. And, you know, I apologize, and I offer to guide them through, and I pour out tastes, and I do everything I can to be, you know, hospitable around that scenario. But the challenge is implicit there. It's like there's there's ways of making totally easy money at Roberta's, and I won't do it because there are ways of making money that encourage people to explore. How do you train your staff to deal with that same situation? What do you tell them? We talk about it really openly. You know, I, I ask them to come to me with instances where people are being like, this is gross. I'm not dealing with it because um, it does happen every now and then. And I tell them, you know, pour out tastes. Don't ever correct a guest. Don't ever tell them that, you know, this sediment is normal if they're telling you it's abnormal. Don't ever tell them that the wine isn't corked. There's just a little bit of volatile acidity on it. I was like, don't even go there, you know, because the last thing you want is to embarrass somebody, you know, who's spending their money in your home, (laughs) you know. Uh, And not only do you not want to embarrass them, but you also don't want to get into a pissing contest. So we talk a lot about um, how to be hospitable, even when there's a wine list that ruffles feathers or makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable. So we we converse about that. We I, you know, and every once in, every once in a while, I'll step in and intervene. Like if I have a guest who's just dug their heels in, and a staff member who's like, kind of peeing themselves because they don't, they're like, I don't know how to talk these people down, or I don't know how to help them. You know, I'll step in and and sort of take take the brunt of it now and then. And we have one or two other Psalms on the floor who are very adept at doing that. And you just chalk that up to things that happen. You know, it's it's okay to have one out of every 15 encounters be like that if you're, you know, the other 14 are going awesome and people feel really excited to see things they've never seen before. Because there's probably a fair amount of people who do come there to try something they haven't had before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd say at this point, it's probably half you know, and, and to have half of your guests be open to exploring is a really special scenario. You so know? if you say we're open for explorer packages, like that's what we do. <laughs> we set explorer tours, then you get more explorers your way, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it, it does, it gains momentum over time. You know, I, there was a moment where I was in service about a week ago and I looked around and I realized that not only was there a bottle on almost every table on the floor, I I, we had ascertained that like half of the guests in the restaurant were either restaurant people or were people who were very serious diners and who wanted to talk about all the other restaurants they've been to and all the other wine lists they drink off of. And it was like, wow, okay, word's getting out, you know, which is cool. 
one of the things that's kind of struck me every time I've been to Roberta's is that when I go there, I'm frequently surrounded by people that when I was their age, I wasn't necessarily dining that way. No, yeah, not at all. When I was their age, I was like going to nightclubs and stuff. For sure. I mean, they still do that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but that high energy vibe has been translated in a way mm-hmm. to food. Yeah. You know, maybe because, oh, like I can't really afford to go to a nightclub if they're only going to do bottle service. That's right. You know what I mean? That's right. Not only that, but the Grey Goose over in Bushwick is, you know, $7 a glass and the Grey Goose in Midtown is 70 So that that changes some things, you know. Is there a difference in the kind of experience that the clientele is looking for, depending on who they are and where they're coming from? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, we definitely, one of the mantras that the management has and that we talk about not just in terms of wine, but in service, is that people walk in the door often confused. They walk in disoriented. Many of them can't even tell that it's a restaurant from the outside. And indeed, it looks sort of like a junkyard, you know, Um it's exactly like that entrance to the three investigators, like clubhouse, <laughs> totally. you know, where they had to go through <laughs> totally. the secret refrigerator door yeah. to get through to the... And there's a passcode and a dress code, and only the dress code is your 40-year-old t-shirt. But, you know, be- because of that, some people are fine. They walk in and they're like, hey, this is bizarre, cool, I'm down for it. A lot of people are like, okay, my, my kids told me that this restaurant is great, and, you know, I'm I from... I think that's a mark of success then. I think so. Right? Like yeah. if the parents show up because the kids said, that means you've yeah. made it. Yeah. I mean, it happens too. We, you know, we we like laugh because there are, there's a lot of work that we do to make sure that people who are our parents' age feel comfortable, you know, which is hard when you've got mostly bench seating. <laughs> but are there a lot of people who want to come and feel younger too? Are there people who are like, I'd like to be hip again? I think so. I think so, which I would never, ever call out. But there are times when you see, you know, in the tiki tent, which is like really subversive feeling because it's actually military tents. That I, I actually can't hang in a tiki tent. It's, it's like too intense for me. It's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. I'm, I'm pretty wimp out. Like I get in there, I'm like, wow, the vibe here is just... <laughs> Yeah, but sometimes, you see, this is what people don't know. Sometimes you're like, you'll go into the tiki tent expecting this like heavy metal you know, debauch. And, you know, one of our bartenders is playing like Hall and Oates. And right, there right, and there right. are dads just Bell like, and Sebastian is just banging. Like rocking out, you know. Oh, and, right, right, right. And uh and we laugh because we're like, this guy's got penny loafers on and he's having a great time. And we kind of can't believe it. You know, it's we're thrilled. We're thrilled because, you know, there's this image that the the restaurant a popular image of the restaurant is that it's this hipster enclave and that everyone is sour. Enclave, I think they say. I, I, I'll try again. I mean, if you're a real hipster. <laughs> hipster enclave. Um, you know, but that, that it's uh, unforgiving and sort of unwelcoming. And, I haven't found that. Well, you know, you're gracious. Um, but also, maybe it's because you kind of have an idea of what's going on in there, right? Is that, that we really do care about warmth um, and we care about... Sure, we want to do things a little bit differently. We want to be exploratory and experimental, but we also want people to feel like it's okay to be in there, you know? And like we're not we're not challenging everything about who they are and what they want. We're just challenging a few things, and the rest of it is about warmth. So why serve wine in that environment? I mean, wouldn't it be easier just to have a ton of beer and like cocktails? I think it was for a long time. That's what they that's what they prioritized. That's what the owners prioritized. Beer fits the setting. People are more comfortable with that because they're like, okay, I'm in, I'm in this really casual setting. I'm just going to eat some pizzas or whatever. I'm going to knock back a couple draft beers. But younger and younger people in the U.S. want to drink wine. The demographic is shifting. And the kinds of wine that Americans drink are shifting intensely. 
you know, I keep watching the statistics about the percentage of the American populace that's drinking wine, and it's way higher than it was even seven or eight or nine years ago when I first started to learn. So that means you can do broader things. And it also means that you can you can tweak the setting a little bit closer to probably where the origins of wine are, which is on the farmhouse table and in your backyard. I still laugh about how every Italian immigrant I know wants to throw vines down in their backyard and make wine in their garage, you know, just like homebrewers in the U.S., you know, and that's that link um, is one that I think is culturally missing for Americans, but that we're we're like able to do there, which is, you know, you should be able to sit outside at a picnic table and drink really dope stuff from you know, the Jura or really incredible wine from Trentino, Alto Adige, you know, that's not hyper-processed. You should be able to do that. And you shouldn't have to go somewhere where you feel like you have to dress up and you have to be having a, a dinner proper. Like you should be able to come at three in the afternoon and kick back a bottle or two with friends and not feel constrained by, you know, setting. Do you feel like if such a vibe had existed when you were in college, that would have been more enjoyable for you? As oh, it would have changed a, a everything. Person? Yeah, it would have changed everything. I mean, I was already interested, but I still remember some of the derision that came from my peers. Like, I'd be sitting in my dorm. This is real. I'd be sitting in my dorm room. I was like 19 or 20, trying to figure out like what's Malbec, right? And I'm sitting there with a Chilean bottle of Malbec, like working it out to myself. Not bothering anybody, mind you. And a couple of my girlfriends would barge in and be like, what's your problem? Like, and, you know, they'd have like 40s of Mad Dog and, you know, like those beautiful blue and silver cans of collegiate water beer. And I'd be like, you know, I'm just I'm just like working on this wine thing. I'm kind of curious about it. And I remember once a girlfriend of mine was like, you know, you're not any different from the rest of us. Right. And I was like, yes. You know, and I didn't, I actually didn't understand what she was saying. And years later, now I know she was saying, you know, wine drinkers are snobs and they are part of an upper echelon that, you know, is a moneyed echelon and a sophisticated echelon. And I didn't understand that. I was like, well, I'm just learning about another beverage. It's no different from the beverage you have. It just happens to be grapes. And that was always my attitude, but I was very alone in that for a long time essentially until I moved to New York, uh, where there were people who were like, yeah, let's, let's kind of put this in a setting, you know, that's maybe a little bit closer to the, to the sort of country people who started it. So the setting then is important that someone can find themselves in mm-hmm. a way. Yep. I think so. I think so. I mean, you should have, there's, you know, there's wine for every occasion too, right? Like there's certainly very special stuff that's like awe inspiring that it's sometimes nice to have the, the setting be a little bit more elevated, you know, and it, it's it's lovely to be able to drink those special bottles in a, a setting that feels appropriate for the occasion. But there's everyday drinking too, you know. There's weekend drinking, and there's um, there's the sort of camaraderie drinking that I love having it happen around a big wooden table. So what happens in ten years for you, for wine, for Roberta's? What do you see? I think that this kind of thing that I'm talking about is going to become more and more the norm. You know, like it feel, I feel like every time I look online, there's some new wine bar, some new, you know, wine list at a restaurant that's carrying stuff from all over and that's attentive to some of the things I've been talking about. And I, th- I think that that's going to be a lot more common. You know, I, I know that there are some things in the wings for Roberta's that they've been excited about the way that wine is becoming a uh, increasing part of what the restaurant is known for. So... There will certainly be development down the road that way. 
And then for me, I don't know, I really enjoy the buying position, mostly because I get to say what I want to do, and I'm incredibly bossy. Uh, <laughs> but also because I really love how it brings a staff to you, and I get to do all of this teaching and mentoring along with it, which is something that I treasure. So maybe maybe ownership one day down the road of my own business. Maybe not. Maybe I just really enjoy buying. Um, I have contemplated going for my MS, if only to be somewhat of a thorn <laughs> in the culture's side. Um, but also because I need to learn about Burgundy in a way that I don't, you know, understand it. So I don't know. There are definitely goals. I want to get better and better. Uh, but I'm not sure what shape they'll take on. Do you find that some wines are sort of exclusive or difficult for you to, to obtain more oh, knowledge yeah. of, even though you're in the business? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the price point at which I buy at is something, it, it, shortens my range in terms of what I'm able to taste and explore um, with the seriousness. You know, so I can't, I actually can't learn about um, Bordeaux or Burgundy or even sometimes Barolo. Um, you know, there are regions that are just, their price points have gotten so high, the Northern Rhone, that in order to study them closely, I would just have to be at every industry tasting under the planet when they drive me crazy. Um, you know, so there are places where my, it's only book learning and it's not as much experiential learning, which I, you know, I regret. Um, but then again, only only some people can drink those wines at those price tags, right? And so that that portion of the population who's drinking wine now represents a smaller and smaller portion. Um, so I'm not sure if, if prices keep rising the way that they are. I'm not sure how much... Um, time I should be laboring over learning that stuff, even though I love the wines, you know, even though I really enjoy them because I don't know if I'll be able to attain them 10 years down the line, you know? So I'm, so I'm not sure. I, I really hope there isn't a growing schism in terms of, uh, what can, can be obtained and can be drunk. Um, and what can't be like, I, I hope that that doesn't happen, but I fear for it. You know, one, one hopes that certain regions of the wine world will be obtainable down the line, but the more they're in demand, you know? Um, so yeah. How do you feel that the wine industry meets the buyer? What's that engagement like from your perspective? Do you find it frustrating? Do you find it liberating? Do you find it helpful? Do you find it challenging? Within the distributing and the vending side of wine, I've had people tell me that I'm frustrating as a buyer. Oh, is that true? Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem like a good sales technique to me. <laughs> uh, well, no, they mostly say it about uh, behind my back, and then it gets back to me. Um, tell that me that means I'm... the people who tell you like you more than them. That's, that's, what... that's correct. That's correct. <laughs> a good indicator that's already correct. of where we're going. <laughs> um, I, I've heard that I'm frustrating as a buyer because I I don't take appointments at random. Um, I don't give audiences to vendors for no reason. I ignore emails because I don't care. <laughs> um, so essentially you act like Pope Francis. Yes. Uh, the man has a way about him. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, but I will absolutely take meetings when people have given me reason to be interested in what their portfolios are offering. Um, when they come to me as an educated person, um, clearly capable of sort of contextualizing wine and bringing it to correct context. You know, there's nothing I hate more than when a random rep for a random vendor will say to me, I have some wine that I really think would be great at Roberta's. I'm like, I would love to know what that means. I would love to hear one sentence about what that means. 
like is there a, a punk label on it is it that the you know the wine is unsulfured is it that it's from a region that no one can pronounce like i'm gonna need a little bit more from you on why i'm supposed to take a meeting you know so and in that way i there's some things about the wine industry that really bug me that's like i'm i'm just supposed to open the doors and you know dole out what small buying power the owners of this business have given to me willy-nilly and i think that that's crazy. I just think that's crazy. Um, so I try to be diligent about what importers I pay attention to, about what distributors I spend time with, and the more um, the more transparent and upfront um, those people are, the the easier it is for me to appreciate the wine in their portfolio. You know, and that there's such a crazy proliferation of vendors across the city. I mean, I I, I don't even know how many there are. That um, I have to be deliberate and careful, and you know. There are there are clearly vendors who and reps, sales reps who take their time and and come deliberately to to share wine with me that and I I end up prioritizing them um, because they're a little bit more educated they're a little bit more um, capable of thinking about wine in a restaurant context and especially the bizarre context that I'm working in. They can kind of curate for you and exactly. you trust them to do it. Exactly. Um, so they save you time rather than take your time. Yeah. Not only do they save me time, you know, I, I like that input. I, I like, you know, it's not just me in a vacuum buying r- wine at random. You know, I like the input of peers who are intelligent on the subject, you know, and I, I love having them bring things to me that I don't know because it's vast what I don't know. You know, but I, I can always tell when someone is just trying to get placements and that's that's an old way of doing business in New York and the alcohol trade that I'm so over. I'm done with it. As a matter of fact, we just stopped carrying Fernet Branca at our restaurant because of a reason like that. And which is, you know, we'll do it. Well, I'll not carry things. I'll not work with distributors just if their their attitudes on, you know, importing and sharing alcohol in in the city are lousy because that means something to me. Amanda Smeltz of Roberta's, she's searching out transparent wines and transparent business practices in Bushwick. I appreciate it, Levy. Amanda Smeltz of Roberta's. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Yeah. There is a kind of ugly duckling story about that though. Like yeah. that thing, like, you know, you know, here I am and everyone thinks I'm a weirdo <laughs> yeah, totally. in Milwaukee. Totally. Now I'm here. Yeah, for There's... sure. And in a completely weird setting. You know. And it was the funny thing is is that that's Or Rudolph's is... the Red Nose Ranger. Yeah. I, Something like that. That's how I feel. <laughs> inside <laughs> the funny thing is is that those girls had they come to roberta's and sat down and drank wine and we would have been like this is the most fun you they know? Would have, oh, the, those girls would have liked it mm-hmm. that that's the thing about the prejudice that like you're looking to knock down a little bit it's like 
that thing where, you know, um, some Americans are totally grossed out by overeducation and some Americans are totally grossed out by the underclass. Like there is a, a meeting ground between them. You think there was a lot of people that we lost because the approach was wrong over time. Absolutely. I think there are lots of people who've been excluded just because the, the attitude hasn't been great. You know, 